0: this is the fighter pilot podcast episode 56 this week retired united states marine corps lieutenant colonel jeff scott joins us to discuss the british designed cold war era jump jet that went on to become a favorite among airshow attendees and marine pilots alike
1: uh, of all the airplanes i flew i'd like to say the harrier was still the most fun just stick and rudder flying. and loved it great plane hell i need you come on help copy work give me some
2: more smoke from the north. strap in for the fighter pilot podcast the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat the aircraft the weapon systems and most importantly the people now here are your hosts Retired U.S. Navy fighter pilots, Vincent Aiello and Brian Sinclair.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. This is episode 56, and when you hear that song from our musician, Jaime Lopez, you know we're talking powered lift, and that is the case today with our interview on the AV-8
3: Harrier coming up. But first, let's introduce our co-host. How's it going there, Sunshine? Hey, Jello. It's going well, man. Just to spend a little time in the desert last week, and now I'm back in San Diego. How about you? Oh, doing well. Just keeping on. Everything's trucking along here. Uh, Let's see. Last time we checked in with you, you said your back was giving you fits. How's that working out? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm still walking around like I'm 70. So but uh, (laughs) hopefully be as optimistic as the prognosis. And I'll be better shortly. Thanks. Okay. How about you, Jello? Oh, everything's good, man. Just uh, busy as always
0: got a lot going on with the show. Got a kid off at college now. And the other two are back at school. So life is trucking along. And I can't believe it's almost fall. In fact, here we are in September. You and I are recording this right before, but this episode will air right after Tailhook. And last year, the two of us were up there and provided an update on all the goings on, but you're not going to be able to make it this year, huh? Nah, the day job calls, if you will. But how about you, Jell? Are you going to be heading up there with anybody? In fact, yes. We've got our two other leadership Players in the podcast sphere here. Uh, let's see, Goat and Owl is what we call them, but yeah, Rob Grady and, and Scott Morris, a couple of guys that are strategic thinkers, will be up there. In fact, we're considering doing maybe a quick Facebook Live or something while we're there. So I guess by the time people hear this, they'll know what we ended up doing. But yep, tailhook is always a fun time to see everybody, and we'll have to maybe plant the flag a little better next year. But speaking of that, the other thing in September is the Miramar Air Show. Uh, I still haven't decided if I'm going to that or not, but what's your schedule like that's always at the end of september
3: right yeah i think it starts the 27th right of september so uh unfortunately mm-hmm. once again i'll be duty calls so i think i'll be in pax river for that uh last half of the, oh. of the week yeah so Unfortunately, okay. I'll miss it again, but it is quite an epic air show. Wouldn't you say, Jello? Oh, yeah. It's always a great show. And I, like I said, I just don't know. Last year, we put a lot of effort into it. This year, we're
0: a bigger show already. So maybe we should just go and let people know where we'll be hanging out and see what happens. I just haven't decided yet. But gotcha. it's a good show. It's our hometown show. And the Red Arrows are going to be there. So we probably need to make the effort. Indeed. Anyway, uh, let's see a couple announcements. More is better, at least some people think. (laughs) And certainly as the case is with the podcast, now that the kids are back in school, we're going to return to our previous format of three shows per month. And at least for the rest of this year, we'll go with the... 2nd, 12th, and 22nd. Now, this episode is airing on Monday the 9th, which we were doing that every other Monday thing for a while. So I thought, Sunshine, what we'll do is replay the question and answer live session we did at your house with Turkey. Oh, with Turkey, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we got the audio doctored up as good as we can. And uh, we'll replay that on the 12th just to reset the schedule. And then we'll pick back up with episode 57th on the 22nd. Okay. And then we'll go back to that three-a-month format after that. Uh, Let's see. We also wrote a couple articles recently. We have some exclusive articles now that we offer our Patreon flight leads and above. Yeah. Last month, we did one on warhead fuses and employment considerations. And this month, we're going to do it on Russian and Chinese aircraft nomenclature. So what's in a name? Like Juliet asked... Uh, you know, Romeo. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. That'll be a good read. Yeah, it should be. I guess you didn't ask him. I think she was asking it anecdotally. But anyway, yeah, I used that little intro for the article. So that should be good. And then every month after that, we'll have another kind of exclusive inside deeper level article on something having to do with military aircraft. Okay. We also did a recent behind the scenes on water survival. People seem to enjoy that. Get a look at what you have to go through. To survive in the event of a mishap in the water. Sunshine, I know you've done
3: that a few times in your career. Oh, I have, dude. I'll tell you what. I used to dread it, and then finally I realized that the biggest enemy I have in the water is myself. You know what I'm saying about the whole fear factor thing? Ah,
0: yeah. Well, you got to just keep your wits about you, right? Yeah,
3: keeping your wits about you, keeping your breathing under control, and the rest of it kind of comes naturally, believe it or not.
0: Yeah. Well, it's kind of diabolical, you know. They strap you into these contraptions, <laughs> flip you upside out, <laughs> put you underwater, goggled, sometimes yes. blacked out
3: goggles, blacked out
0: goggles. You bet. So, if you're interested in that, head over to our YouTube channel and take a look for behind the scenes. I believe it was number eighteen. Sounds right. Okay. Well, sunshine, you know how it is. Every episode we get a little feedback on the previous episode. So, yep. Which we appreciate. Oh, yeah. Yep. So, listener Dwayne Alderman told us that uh, his father was an Air Force FAC-A during Vietnam and flew the O2, which was a converted Cessna 337 Skymaster. Nice. And they also in Vietnam used the O1 Bird Dogs and the OV-10 Broncos, but I guess they used something different in the Korean conflict, huh? Yeah, Angelo. I think the L-5, right, was used in the Korean conflict. Yep, that's right. I think Chili mentioned that during our interview. And then also our old buddy, uh, Mike Day, T-Day, our F-16 guest, he wrote back because I sent him a question, hey, what about the single-seat F-16 guys? And he says that uh, it used to be just the 0 010, OV-10, I should say, Bronco, mm-hmm. and OA-10 Thunderbolt. Okay. Uh, but then after Desert Storm, there was an Aviano Italy air wing that used Block 40s, and they started doing some of that FACA stuff in the Balkland conflict and then later they turned that into some procedures out at the rag or rtu i think they call it yes at luke air force base and then so yeah so they started doing that in block 40s and the biggest thing he told me that i thought was interesting sunshine is the single seat guys were doing fac a missions. some of them not too much anymore in the f-16 but at the time they were still doing all the other missions that they do and i just find that tough to
3: believe because that's a difficult thing to do that is a daunting thing man you got to be the jack of all trades maybe master of none right yeah well that was certainly the case i felt in the f-18
0: but me too maybe these guys do it better Yeah. yeah i don't know all right bud how about some listener questions i can start with one for you from alex from the uk sound good yes sir all right being on a carrier alex asked for a longer time do pilots actually connect with other teams and i'll just insert the word divisions of the ship in their free time or do they mostly stick to themselves
3: well Alex, thank you very much for the question. I'd say, Jello, that we predominantly stuck within the air wing, so all the squadrons would play well together, both with the uh, ground pounders, the non-flying officers, as well as the pilots. And we had, you know, especially on no-fly days, do you remember doing things like feats of strength? <laughs> oh, yeah. We had all kinds of shenanigans. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, stupid human tricks, feats of strength. So there would be competitions to see, hey, who can chug 32 ounces of milk the fastest or how many M&Ms can you stick in your face, you know, <laughs> who can stick the most, I should say, and all that good uh, stuff. That goodness was traditionally with w- amongst the air wing itself. But then we also had things like, remember the officer deck training, the OOD training, Yeah, where they the ship would kind of try to... F- I don't want to say force, but it would help to facilitate, how about that, mm-hmm. A more of a mingling between the ship's company and the air wing by sending the air wing personnel at a certain rank, if you will, up into the bridge, and they would go through a, an abbreviated syllabus of learning how to operate or navigate, really, the uh, aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And then also uh, chapel. Chapel's a time where I would interact with not only the carrier air wing, right, the CVW, but also the ship's company there. I also had a, a standalone Bible study. So there are opportunities. Oh, a Wardroom 3. How about that Jello? Did you hang out with many guys other than air wing Bubba's down in the, the uh, Wardroom 3? Yeah, once in a while. I mean, I don't know. I guess to Alex's
0: point It's not like we shun each other or avoid each other No. but you tend to stick with you know your own clicks I'm sure it's the same way anyone who's been to a school. You know, you've got your friend if you're on a team You stick with your team and you, you say hi to other folks, but yeah, for the most part I would add though sunshine Did you ever get to go down and do a tour of the weapons magazines? Yeah, so that was pretty cool. Yeah, so there's another time you get a chance to see all those guys. But yeah, yeah, we do interact. And of course, if you see each other on Liberty, you say hello. But that's pretty much it. I agree. All right, how about we take a phone call next?
4: Hello, Jello at Sunshine. This is uh, Hakeem Dixon from sunny South Florida. My question is, uh, Jello, you mentioned that um, you were stationed in Japan at one point, right? So my question is, like, did you ever have, like, any negative, say, experiences with the people in Japan? Has anybody ever, like, given you flack or anything like that? And then, secondly, how did you feel, like, when, um, during your first, like, couple of years? Like, did you ever feel like, what did I get myself into, or did you ever regret it? Something like that. And my last question is, like, I know you guys don't want to broach politics or anything like that, but um, how do you feel about the threat posed by North Korea? Like, I do know, like, California is a powerful target area, so, like... Like, how do you feel about them? Do so you think we should be scared of them or whatnot? Thanks, guys, for the content and hope to see what you've got coming next. And many thanks to God. All
0: right, Hakim, thank you very much from South Florida. Sounds like they did okay from Dorian recently, hopefully. Uh, no, I never had any trouble with anyone while I was in Japan. I was only there for one year. I was supposed to stay longer, but I had a health issue that uh, forced me to move on. And I remember at the time something had happened in Okinawa with some Marines and some locals and there were some very peaceable and peaceful protests outside our base, but I never interacted with anyone from that. And so, no, I never had any trouble. I never asked myself, what did I get myself into? I know. And maybe you do too, sunshine, people who go back to Japan tour after tour if they can, because they just love it. Absolutely. And yeah, I really liked that it was such a different culture. It was very different from the U S and an, a lot of ways in good ways, you know, they're very much based on pride and and shame, which are kind of opposite sides of the coin, if you will. But also they're not very litigious. So our, our kids really loved their parks and the different contraptions that they had because, you know, there was different things they could crawl on and play on and they didn't worry too much about kids getting hurt. And if they did, that was just part of being a kid. They didn't worry about getting sued, I guess. And as far as being concerned about threats from North Korea, no, I I don't live in fear of pretty much anything. Do they have things that can reach out and touch us both in Japan and here on the West Coast? I guess, theoretically, but what good does it do myself to uh, live in fear? So uh,
3: no, I don't worry about that. Sunshine, you didn't do any tours in Japan, I don't think, correct? No, I did no tours in Japan. Just uh, stopped there with a carrier for port calls. That was it. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Are you uh, quaking at night by the North Korea threat? No, but I mean, uh, if you look at it from a more objective perspective, I guess you could say you got capabilities and intent, right, for North Korea. So from the capability Mm -hmm. side, I mean, they do have active and increasingly sophisticated nuclear weapons and ballistic missile programs. I mean, as evidenced back in 2017, I think it was, they had their first successful intercontinental ballistic missile launch, the Hwasong-15. And it's got, our analysts say it's got an estimated range of 8,000 miles, so it can reach anywhere in the continental U.S., yeah. Now, the actual test was only 590 miles, and I guess it dropped down in some kind of exclusive economic zone in Japan or something. But still, point being is they've demonstrated the capability. They've also, I think, later that year in September, they had some they called thermonuclear weapons testing. So the capabilities are there. And when it comes to the intent, though, think about uh, April now of 2018. So a year later from the earlier example, and Kim Jong-un halted testing on weapons, on those, those types of weapons. And he had that summit with the South Korean leaders. Or leadership, So that was a good, you know, example of extending a olive branch, if you will. Mm-hmm. And then June, just a little bit later there, he also met Kim Jong-un, that is, met with Donald Trump in Singapore. So you had that right. going for us, if you will. But then, unfortunately, in February of this past year, they had that summit in Hanoi, Vietnam, and kind of stalled out the talks. And unfortunately, as of late, as of August, I think the testing for the short-range ballistic missiles is back in full swing. So, Jello, I totally get what you you say. Can't live in fear, but... I would say the capabilities and potentially the intentions are there.
0: Yeah, I just have to think if they were foolish enough to do anything, the international reaction would be pretty damning. And I don't think they'd come out too well on the uh, other side of that. But yep, that's a a good nuanced uh, addition. Thank you very much. All right, let's move on to Fernando Martinez. Sunshine, this one's right up your alley. What happens if an aircraft falls into the water, he says? Does it sink immediately or can it stay afloat for some time?
3: Uh, well I've seen both so I think uh, so Fernando thank you very much for the question I think you're kind of touching on Archimedes principle right which that whole was that buoyant force thing kind of defined it's uh, very fundamental to fluid dynamics and it basically says that if the weight of the water displaced is greater than the object weight then the object will float right so uh, yeah mm-hmm. if, if planes when they hit the water they usually break apart when they break apart water fills in the vacuums the voids and all that and down they go but if they happen to stay together There have been some examples, right, Jello, of things floating. Like think of uh, Captain, or I should just say Sully's A320, right, in the Hudson River. That floated for a while. That's right.
0: Yeah, it did. In fact, they were able to put a barge on it and drag it over to the side. And uh, I think they pulled it out. I forget what happened after that. But yeah, you've heard, at least I have anecdotally of people who eject and uh, they are sometimes near their aircraft or if they ditch or whatever. And it floats for a time, I suppose, until the water fills in all those voids. And
3: then, uh, like I said, down they go. So
0: yeah, it's a little bit of both. I yeah, think, a little to bit Fernando's of both.
3: Point. And then I ended up chatting with a, uh, he was uh, chief in the back of the depot with me, and he was actually aboard that COD that launched out of Japan when it had the issue and it crashed into the water just to mm. the, the starboard side or the right side of the aircraft carrier. So, and that thing did not float very long at all. And unfortunately, mm. they did lose some air crew. So sometimes they float, sometimes they sink, and usually it's based on fuselage damage. Okay, cool. All right, should we move on to, how about another question, Jello? Go for it. This one's from Terry in Singapore, and he asks, what are mental exercises fighter pilots engage in so that they can hold their nerve during an intense moment, like a dogfight?
0: Hmm,
3: that's an interesting question, Terry. Thanks for that. I wouldn't say I did any mental
0: exercises just for the sake of exercise, like, math equations or puzzles or anything. But what I would do is if there was a particular maneuver I was struggling with, whether it was a deck transition, i.e. leveling off right before you hit the artificial deck, which would be the ground in real life, or if there was something else I was not doing well, I would sit and chair fly it. So I'd close my eyes. And I think we talked about this on the Blue Angel interview that you did with right, yeah. uh little G sometime back. Yeah. So they'll close their eyes and go through their maneuvers. I would do the same thing. I would imagine what I was doing with the stick throttle and rudders and just try to imagine when I see this, I'm going to do this and this is what I expect the result to do. So for me, it was
3: visualization. Do you ever have any mental exercises sunshine? Yeah, it was predominantly chair flying. Just like you said, Uh case in point would be air force test pilot school where they say, Hey, Welcome to Test Pilot School. Here's the uh, the gouge on this next plane. You're gonna fly it in a day and a half. You're gonna basically read the gouge, take a quiz, go fly the jet and then write a report on it. So that required a lot. I was very uncomfortable pretty much for all the evolutions and uh, my day would usually start up by reading, or my evolution would start out by reading the text and then doing, just like you said, Jello, chair flying.
0: Gotcha. All right, I think we have time for one more question then we'll get on to the interview. Okay,
3: you wanna do a phone call? Sure.
4: Hey, guys. This is Dan from the U.S., born and raised in Maryland, but currently living in the Czech Republic. I have a question regarding speed brakes, which is that on all kinds of aircraft, you can find speed brakes in all kinds of uh, positions on the aircraft, so on the bottom, on the sides, top and bottom, just top. And it seems to me that uh, the variation in where speed brakes are put means that it can be put almost anywhere and it's not really thought about. So is that true? Is it really important for every aircraft where the speed brake is put? Or is it kind of slapped on anywhere and it just does the trick by Helping ditch speed. Anyway, just wanted to ask that, and thanks very much. Keep up the great work.
3: All right, sunshine. This sounds like your uh, ballpark again. What do you think? <laughs> well, thank you, Jello. So, and, and Dan, thank <laughs> you from uh, I guess formerly a Marylander, now from the Czech. So, when you talk about speed, or some people call them air brakes, right? Let's look mm. a little bit at the history, if you don't mind. So, back in '36, the German glider designs actually had dive brakes, which were these blades that would pop out of the upper lower portions of the wings. The idea caught on. They said, hey, why don't we use flaps? They started using flaps in the thirties and forties. And then eventually the manufacturing design goal, if you will, was really to go supersonic. Well, it turns out supersonic aircraft have a tough time traditionally back then with speed brakes on the wings. So they transitioned to the fuselage and that allowed for basically more robust speed brakes, plus also better wing control. So nowadays though technology's a lot better obviously and they, they take into account a lot of things like we always say on the show Jello it's a series of compromises right so they're going to oh, look yes. yeah they're going to look at the size they're going to look at surface area location and the amount of drag produced by each shape and you get what you see which is on the F15 the uh, legacy hornet and the SU27 they've got basically that after that on the back speed brake right mm-hmm. whereas if you look at from the 50s the Royal Navy Buccaneer this was kind of cool it actually had a split tail cone so the tail cone would separate into Two little pieces and that would act as the speed brake now on the uh t-45 you know you got the speed brakes on the sides right mm-hmm. and after the empennage area and then think yeah, a4 was the same way yeah great call and then also some sometimes they use the drag chute right like the shuttle for example has the drag chute plus it also has a its rudder turns into basically a speed brake right it splits into two directions if you Whoa. will so it's kind of okay and then you flew the f-16 and where were the boards there uh so
0: similar to a T forty five in a sense, except they were more vertically up and down. So just next to the engine, but when you put them out, two on each side, two up and two down, kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't know. It's hard to explain. Well, yeah. you No,
3: no. I'm, I'm tracking it, but so, so kind of inboard of the stabs, right? Would you say? Right. And they deploy mm-hmm. in a yeah. clamshell fashion that was kind of oriented vertically as opposed to horizontally, like the T forty five. So totally with you. So anyway, basically, it comes down to a series of factors, and the biggest one for me, I thought, was aerodynamic influence. So. Usually you want to have it balanced. If there's an upper, it needs to be a lower. If there's a left, it needs to be a right. And that was all very true until we had flight control computers. Right, Jello? And then at that point, basically our FCS, our flight controls, computers, FCCs, I should say, with the correct sensor input, they can accommodate anything, can't they? Yeah, in fact, to your point, the Super Hornet
0: does not have the same speed brake of the Legacy Hornet. It has a couple little things that pop up, but then for the most part, it deflects flight control surfaces for the pilot in different manner that help act as a traditional large speed brake. But if you were to look at it individually, you might get some rudder deflection, some aileron deflection, some horizontal stabilator deflection, and you might think, wait, is it going to pitch roll or yaw? But again, to your point, the
3: FCCs take care of that yeah exactly right and I think they call that a speed brake function because there's no physical component that's just one isolated speed brake so yeah I'm totally with you dude and actually I, I really enjoyed I don't know if that's the right word but I really I liked anyway the uh, speed brake function on the Rhino how did you feel about it compared to the, the Chuck I mean it seemed to work Right, and
0: If you yeah. put out the speed brakes, it slows you down or helps you get down, whichever method you need at the time. So,
3: yeah, no, I thought it worked fine. Yeah, and there wasn't much of a pronounced pitch up or pitch down on deployment with a speed brake function in the rhino, ah, I thought. Good point. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so it's pretty well balanced, and it's just like Jello said, it's kind of an over-deflection of the control surfaces in a very aerodynamically balanced nature so that the plane doesn't jostle around too much. So, anyway... Perfect. That was a test pilot answer. Shall we move on? <laughs> <laughs> hey, that's why you're here, buddy. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, thanks, Dan,
0: and uh, all of our question submitters. Hopefully, we'll get to some more next time. All right.
3: So why don't we get to the interview, Sunshine? You had a chance to listen. Any lead-in thoughts? Yeah, dude. Holy cow. So Magwa, love listening to his stuff. I had no idea. Oh, I just love the fact that he was No 0351 for, what, about six years or so. So he used to blow up tanks on the ground. And then the Marine Corps said, hey, why don't you go ahead and blow up tanks in the air? And I just absolutely love that. So it makes for a a great story, right?
0: (laughs) Well, let's let the listeners hear for themselves. All right, let's get to it. All right, Viva Las Vegas, baby. Today, the Fighter Pilot Podcast is in Sin City. And joining me in studio is retired United States Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel Jeff Scott. Magua. how you doing, bud?
1: Great. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, well, it's good to be here, and uh, you live here, don't you?
1: I do. Excellent. I I actually live here.
0: All right. Well, even though it's supposed to be 109 degrees today, bud.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It it gets hot.
0: (laughs) Well, hey, man, we're going to talk today about the Harrier, and you've flown that, so you're going to help us out. But first, let's get to know you. Where are you from? What was your career like and what are you doing now?
1: Well, I'm from the Northern California Bay Area. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps out of high school. I went to uh, boot camp. I actually was uh, an enlisted uh, grunt. No kidding. For six years. What was your MOS? oh uh, three fifty one anti tank assault man. whoa so, <laughs> uh, and then I went to college and uh, got my degree and uh, started flying planes for the marine Corps so okay. and then i I flew the harrier, got selected to fly the harrier. Still busting tanks, yep, just from the <laughs> air, so uh, a little easier uh on my feet and uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. carrying a pack around yeah uh, and then I, I did that for a number of years, and then uh, right before I retired, I uh, got a chance to uh, fly the f thirty five I Ooh. stood up the first operational squadron, the F-35, the Stouffville variant, the F-35B, and then mm-hmm. uh, then retired. And now I work for Draken International, uh, Director of Business Development. and I fly A-4 Skyhawks, uh, L-159s and L-39s.
0: In fact, you're in your flight suit right now. You got a flight today?
1: I do. Yeah, oh, this dude. afternoon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad this worked out. We've been trying this, what, for months? And uh, I finally flew in this morning. You picked me up and We're here in the studio, and when we're done, you're going to drop me off and go take your flight, and I'll head back to San Diego. So, pretty good gig.
1: Yeah, thanks for making that work out. Oh, yeah,
0: you're welcome. Well, I know you're going to wow us all with your information on the Harrier, so let's jump right into it. First off, tell me, how many hours do you have in the Harrier?
1: I have around eighteen hundred hours wow. in the Harrier.
0: Okay, as many takeoffs as landings.
1: Oh, yeah, just about right. Yeah, and it, it, you know the Harrier doesn't have a long time on station, so I got them <laughs> one hour at a time.
0: <laughs> right, right. No, I meant. Uh, did you ever have to?
1: Oh, I've never had to punch out. Oh, about one. One? No, I, I've goodness. been asked that a few times, All but right. I've never had to.
0: Okay, fair fortunately. enough. Well, realizing this aircraft has quite a history overseas and the Marine Corps adopted it. Let's start at the beginning with as much information as you're able to pass on, and then we can maybe fill in some blanks later if necessary. We have always a lot of listeners who are happy to tell us what we missed on this show. (laughs) I'm sure. Uh, But let's start with what was the aircraft designed to do?
1: Well, the aircraft is uh, designed as a light attack airplane, and it's fairly unique in that it's a Stovall aircraft, short takeoff, vertical landing. Right. Uh, at the time, I think it was called v Vertical Short Takeoff and Landing, but, you know, it uh, was really designed that way by the British back more of a Cold War era type mindset where the runways possibly going to be bombed out in a war with Russia would be uh, from the east there and they would have to operate from hides and roadways and such like that. So they built it for that and then they also bought amphibious ships so they were able to buy ships that didn't have catapults on them Mm -hmm. and were able to take off and land without the assist of a catapult or um, wires with a hook. Mm -hmm. So the airplane was adaptable to, uh, still had to have a flight deck, but not quite as big. The British really perfected that. And then the, the Marine Corps took that and adopted that for their own use from the amphibious concept and the Marine Expeditionary Unit using amphibious shipping because... Well, the Navy had already spoken for all the big deck carriers and those are right. quite expensive to make. So <laughs> yes, they were able to uh, kind of increase the number of carriers, if you will, mm-hmm. and fixed wing aircraft or carriers that had fixed wing aircraft by doing that.
0: So that's interesting because an aircraft that was designed theoretically for a Cold War scenario where runways might be damaged was adapted by the Marine Corps thinking, hey, once we get ashore, then what? We can set up some bases where... The, our support aircraft can land, refuel,
1: rearm? That's right. From that concept, they could go to forward operating bases mm-hmm. and quickly refuel and rearm. It still requires a fairly significant footprint in terms of just sure. supporting an aircraft. So it's not quite like a helicopter in that regard, but uh, it requires a little bit more support probably than your average helicopter, and it needs a little bit of runway, uh, whether it's a road or an actual runway, that, mm-hmm. like aluminum matting, an expeditionary-type runway. But it still makes it a little flexible, a little adaptable. And when the Marine Expeditionary Unit travels, that is their indirect fire support because they don't bring artillery on the amphibious ships. So that's kind of their airborne artillery, if you will.
0: Hmm. Not sure I knew that. So sometimes I get emails from wives, believe it or not, mostly, (laughs) who say, my husband was uh, playing your podcast on a road trip, and after the second or third one, I actually found I enjoyed it. And some of them tell me later that they don't really know that much about the aircraft that we speak with assumptions on. So let's go back to some basics here. What makes the Harrier a Stovall now instead of—I used to call it V-Stall, so I guess that's out. It's now Stovall?
1: It, it, right, and the F-35B okay. is officially Stovall, so okay. that they've adopted that. Well,
0: what is it about the aircraft, though, that makes it able to take off and land vertically?
1: it has nozzles on the side so the exhaust comes out of four nozzles two Mm -hmm. on each side and they're all interconnected so they move together you know fully aft is uh you know normal flight when you're flying around like a normal airplane Mm -hmm. it still is not in the back of the airplane so you're blowing some of your hot gas down the side of your airplane Um, but for the most part yeah it flies like a normal airplane once uh your nozzles are aft Mm -hmm. however you can move them and when you move them it actually takes bleed air from the engine and augments through various ducts in different positions on the wingtips and the the nose and the tail. So as you get slower, uh, as it slows down for, say, a vertical landing, as your aerodynamic flight controls become less and less effective to the point of not being effective at all, it takes high-pressure air and and blows them out, these ducts, to give you control on the different axes, whether roll or pitch, yaw. And they're all interconnected to the stick so they all move with the stick and the rudder pedals it's actually a pretty simple design the way they did it which is a good thing because uh, for reliability obviously but it's a pretty ingenious uh, how they made it all work together sure And fly around and then land, you know, stop in in the air and land, which I've flown it for many years and I still look at it and it's still impressive to me.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and anyone who's seen a Harrier demonstration at an air show has been amazed usually because here's an airplane that you're used to seeing other aircraft like it go fast and all of a sudden it comes in. To show center and basically stops in midair and turns and faces the crowd and goes left and right and forward and back and dips its wings and bows and it's funny i actually was talking to my mother on the phone last night and i told her i was coming out for this interview and i said you know the harrier your favorite because when she used to go to <laughs> shows with us when i was kids we were kids. That was always her favorite was the Harrier because it just amazed her that it would sit there. Of course, it was loud, <laughs> but you would see it and you could kind of see the smoke coming down a little bit, a little bit, you know, some smoke in the engines and it would just sit there and just look at you. And it looked menacing because you would always have your gear and your flaps down and everything.
1: Yeah, it is. And, and it looks really cool when you raise the gear when you're in the hover, the, the demonstration mm. they, they do that. That smoke that you talk about is actually uh, water injection really, to keep the engine cooler. Yeah, it's okay. uh, distilled water that is uh, injected into the hot section of the airplane, and it allows the RPM and the temperature, allows it to run a little bit bit more thrust out of the engine Mm -hmm. so it can generate that extra power for hovering when needed. You had about 90 seconds of water uh, in there. Gives you, like I said, a little bit more thrust. Normally, water gives you less thrust, but because it allows the engine to operate at a higher temperature, it allows higher RPM. So net, you get a higher level of thrust. And actually... The turbine blades are operating above their melting point at their max.
0: If it wasn't for the if water. If it wasn't for the water wow. injection.
1: And the small holes that are through the uh, turbine blades they allow try to keep them cooler. Huh.
0: So do you have a gauge or a meter or something that tells you how much water you have left, just like how much fuel you have
1: Exactly. Yeah? It sits in pounds, just wow. like fuel. You have 500 <laughs> pounds of water. Wow. Uh, okay. You can use it for takeoff too, but generally it's used for uh, landing. Hmm. Occasionally for takeoff, if you're heavyweight and you have a very short run, you can get a little extra thrust to reduce your takeoff distance.
0: And is this something you're doing, Magua, as the pilot, or is it something where you've commanded, for example, we just had the V-22 episode, which is also in this category, and the pilot there, Sweet Pea, had said that, you know, certain things he can put in as a vote, if you will, but the airplane just won't let him do it. Uh, (laughs) Are you controlling the water here, or is it a result of something you're asking for?
1: You have an input. It's a switch, and uh, the switch is three positions off take off and land. After that, it is based on, depending on what position it's in, based on throttle position and temperature or RPM, and it can hit one or the other first. And again, it depends on what position that you select and whether it's take off or land. Take off, it'll flow a little bit sooner mm-hmm. based on RPM. So as you hit your RPM and then uh, starts flowing, you're just going to you know get that. So a lot of times the RPM will, you'll hit your max RPM first and then the temperature will continue to rise and then it'll you know start flowing if it's in land mode mm-hmm. and then it'll cool it down about 15 degrees celsius is what <laughs> all right. but that black smoke is it's oh, water that's okay. come out and you've probably have seen it in like in a b52 sure. they, they have water injection as well similar right. to that
0: we've recorded that episode but we haven't played it yet so yes that <laughs> does come up in our discussion now we've gone down a bit of a rabbit hole here but that's all right it's kind of fun let's talk about though the controls for hover or whatever you would call the just, you know, hovering. In a regular fighter like my F-18, I have a stick and throttle, which I'm sure you do too. Yeah. But I don't have maneuverable uh, exhausts like you do. So how do you control that?
1: Next to the throttle on, mm-hmm. on your left hand, there is a, a knob, a little lever inside the throttle. It just goes fore and aft and that sets your nozzle angle. Okay. So when you move that, the nozzle's moved. They're just, it's a air motor that runs off the engine and it uses a, a chain to connect the nozzles they like, a like, like, a, like a motorcycle chain yeah <laughs> okay. exactly it, it really is that like right. a strong one it's simple yeah. it works that's the point <laughs> but, uh, mm-hmm. and then it rotates you know they rotate around these rings and you can go from full aft which is zero to there's a stop that you'll hit it's called hover stop okay but, and that's 82 degrees down the fuselage is at eight degree datum, so that's basically ninety degrees to your datum, and then you can lift it up and move it further aft over a like a ledge, mm-hmm. and that'll go to ninety eight degrees. So it's really sixteen degrees forward, and that's called braking stop. That's full braking stop. Anywhere in there, you can select any degrees you know between zero and ninety eight that you uh, want. It help you slow down faster. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're stopped, it will back you up. Even on the ground, you can use it as sort of a thrust reverser, like not as powerful as probably typical ones, but it still right. does some. It still helps with that. And then when you move the nozzles from aft out of zero, a butterfly valve from the engine opens up automatically mm-hmm. from zero, I think, to 36 degrees, if I remember correctly. It's been a few years, but I'm pretty sure that's all right. Okay. That's full open at 36 and beyond of nozzle angle. The butterfly valve is fully open and it takes bleed air off the engine to go to those ducts that I mentioned before mm-hmm. that are interconnected to the stick and rudder that just takes that bleed air to help your flight controls and okay. pitch you on roll.
0: So if you are in the hover in this air show, going back to that example, and you want to slide a little bit left down the flight line, a little bit right, are you literally just doing that with a stick, a little left? Yes. What so, would be normal? So with a the hair, there's
1: a lot of movements you have. to. So yeah, okay. you roll with the stick a little bit, but then you want to keep... Your yaw, you don't want the nose to necessarily pitch that way if you're trying to keep it. So in this example of the air Mm -hmm. show, uh, you want to look fairly symmetrical to the crowd line or perpendicular. So you have to offset that with a little. So if you want to go right, so you do right stick. Right. And then you do just a tiny bit of left rudder pedal to keep the nose straight. You would just feed it in as you feel it trying to yaw to the right. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, you're taking bleed air and porting it out of Ah. these ducts. So you're losing some thrust out of uh-huh. the So you have to con- modulate with the thrust. So you, you, <laughs> every input requires, uh, you know, there's, it's constant. You're it's like a drummer. Every, yes. every
0: limb is doing something.
1: It is. And it, it is a constant, uh-huh. everything's constantly uh, moving. So okay. you're working that.
0: Are there fly-by-wire flight controls?
1: Mm-hmm. No. They have a stability augmentation and okay. attitude hold system. So the stability system does help without that because that, that can fail for you know, whatever reason. Uh, and you have to train to that so it's a much higher workload and i've been told i did not fly the av8a that it's similar to flying the av8a and that is you're moving everything it's like pedaling a bicycle you know your your (laughs) feet are moving in yaw, trying to continue to keep that thing uh, straight
0: so will it save you from yourself if again getting back to this air show if you just ham fist it and go too far to the right or not enough rudder is it going to stop you or is it going to go into the ground
1: it won't stop you from doing anything. It, okay. it, the harrier, it's all the pilot, so uh-huh. it's great, but it's not very forgiving. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that about the harrier. Okay. So if if the pilot wants to do something Stupid. that <laughs> shouldn't do yeah, dumb, <laughs> yeah. uh, it won't protect you from that. so it it'll keep going to the right uh-huh. until you put a opposite movement in to stop it. So if you in this instance or this example, where you are sliding to the right, you keep sliding, you want to stop sliding to the right. You have to then put left stick back in Mm -hmm. and kind of counter. Almost kind of like being on skates and trying to do a hockey stop. You just keep gliding along until you stop yourself. (laughs) Okay.
0: I just never have obviously flown one of those, and that just seems crazy. Just as a quick aside without going into too much detail, is the F-35B similar? or No, it's completely different. Oh, gosh.
1: yes. Does that make it hard to transition? You know, it's great. The F-35B is great for Mm -hmm. somebody who's never – done stove before i think it's actually easier for uh-huh. somebody who hasn't than it is for a hairy guy because you have to unlearn some of uh-huh. the things you've learned okay. now it's not impossible obviously right. i mean i've done it it's actually brilliant the way they designed it uh-huh. and it's all fly by wire you just tell it what you want to do and it just does it
0: but that's the difference in 30 years of technology also. Absolutely. Okay. Well, we've yet to have, and we really owe it to the audience, but we've yet to have an F-35 episode. So hopefully we'll get to that soon. And someone who's uh, our guest on that show hopefully has flown the B model and can tell us about it. All right. So let's retract all the uh, rope that we took down this rabbit hole and go back <laughs> up to Basically designed as a jump jet adapted from the British for the Marine Corps, and they've used it successfully in multiple conflicts over the last, gosh, what, 20, 30 years that you guys have been flying it.
3: Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it's going to keep
0: flying, I believe, right, for another— It's
1: got, let's see, probably another 9, 10 years left in it.
0: So in all that, really, for the Marine Corps, it comes down to supporting the grunts on the ground,
1: right? Absolutely.
0: Our next question generally on the aircraft series here is, what does it do well? What would you say, is there one mission that it's is it's bread and butter?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Close air support is okay. what it really, uh, the Marine Corps focuses on right. that mission.
0: And again, that is the point. And we just, on the last episode, had a discussion on forward air controllers. So that's good that we can now follow it up with the AV-8B. Do you do, in fact, the uh, FAC mission, FAC-A in the Harrier?
1: Yes. So uh, oh. all Harriers, not all Harriers are single seat, but all the combat Harriers, right. we'll put it that way, are single seat mm-hmm. uh, there's trainers that are not, but uh, everything used in combat. So once they went to a single seat FAC A, once they accepted that as mm. a, in the Marine Corps, it has done FAC A.
0: Really? Now, it's c- because last time, Chili and my guest and I were kind of opining that the Navy and the Marine Corps only uses multi-seat. And for the F-18, I believe the Marine Corps uses the D for that.
1: They do. And they do single seat FAC A in the Marine Corps Hornets uh, they they. as well. Okay. But it's certainly, you know, two seat. It's when you don't have to your hands on the throttle and stick, it mm. allows you to be probably a little bit better as a FAC-A. Really, the big thing is a is tempo uh, right. just because they can focus on the radio. I got controls from a two-seat FACA from the back seater, obviously. They were actually at the tanker. Well, they were giving me type three control <laughs> in Iraq. And wow. there's no way a single seater could ever do that, as, no. you, as you know. <laughs> yes,
0: that's true. Oh, wow. Okay. Now, does everybody do FAC A in a Harrier? Or no. Did you? No, I did okay. not.
1: It was just coming around as All I right. was uh, actually at a uh, weapons school instructor, but I did not. I mean, I did a lot of close air support, obviously. but right. And I've done FAC A escort, had to help out with that. I haven't done that myself now. Okay. Probably the only one I... qualification i didn't do
0: well that's got to be pretty crazy a single seat because uh according to our guest last week like i said Chile, there's a lot of coordination you're working with the folks on the ground all the radios the dynamic environment of the situation changing plus handling the stack so that's got to be pretty challenging so cas is its bread and butter now it has since though earned an ability or i don't know if earned is the right word but it has some air to air ability does it not
1: it does yeah absolutely i mean it always has, uh, even back in the days. You know, mm-hmm. it was AIM-9 only, but back when AIM-9 was more used in the Falklands, the British mm-hmm. used a Sea Harrier quite a bit there. But uh, it has grown with the radar, and it now carries AIM-120. AMRAM, sure. Right. So it does have a air-to-air capability. Okay.
0: And it has the same radar, I believe, as my trusty old Legacy Hornet, the APG-65.
1: It does, Okay. Yeah.
0: Very cool. So I'm familiar with that. Now, you touched on the Sea Harrier. Let's see if we can get through the variants. And okay. I only say let's see because I assume you know them, but I don't. I know there's some GR terminology, and we've talked about that before on this show with our Tornado guest. But we've got some Aviate As, and then we only have Bs in the Marine Corps, I believe,
1: right? We now only have Bs. Okay. Yeah, we had Aviate oh, right. As, yeah. and then we transitioned completely to Aviate Bs, which are really different airplanes. I would liken it to a Hornet slash Super Hornet. Oh, you know, they, okay. they carry the same name, but they're very different airplanes. And yeah. they look similar, but...
0: I read that they redesigned the wing and... Completely. Okay, yeah. so it's let's... A
1: much, it's a bigger airplane. Definitely, yeah, the different whole airplane Canopy
0: arrangement for the cockpit. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. At least, not, not every, obviously, obscure one, but what was the beginning and where are we at now?
1: Well, at the beginning, you have, you know, some of the test variants that mm. the uh, British came up with, the Stovall capability the kestrel and the p1127 i believe it was
0: okay demonstrators really maybe. yeah they were yeah. just
1: trying to demonstrate the concept and, and test it out and then they started building harriers from that and they've had some different variants i remember all the, the gr variants uh, typically are the uh the gr 7s and gr9s were the last ones they flew in the royal air force those were probably similar to our night attack variant didn't have a radar the sea harriers that the royal navy british royal navy flew that are very similar to our av8as however they put a radar in them our av8as did not have a radar the blue vixen radar is actually a very good radar and they carried amram years ago mm. before any u.s harriers ever had an amram and in the u.s we started with the av8a like i said it's a kind of a derivative of the sea harrier from that transition to the av8b entirely new airplane the av8b the first ones were called day attacks and they didn't have a radar they weren't really night systems cockpits, uh, they, and then they changed that to the AB8B, which first ones were the night attack, which were night systems cockpits, and they had a forward-looking infrared on the nose of the airplane. That was like a it was a navigational infrared, and it had a more powerful engine, so it could carry more and you know have better performance mm-hmm. uh, on vertical, uh, significantly more thrust than the uh, av 8 a or sorry, the av 8 b the day attack version and the AV-A for that matter and then they went to the uh, Av8B, that was called the harrier 2 and then the harrier 2 plus which they put the radar in it so they call it the radar slash night attack it's got all the same capabilities as the night attack but with the abg-65 as you mentioned so you know you have a air-to-air mm-hmm. multi-mode radar right. in the airplane and it's probably close to about 80 20 percentage wise maybe 75 25 around there I'm, i used to know the numbers exactly i don't know how it's changed, but they actually remanufactured some day attacks to the AV-8, uh, to the radar jets, and they took the wing, they kept the wing, which is interesting because the wing was one of the first carbon composite wings built, Hmm. and they built it so strong because they weren't sure how long it would last initially that uh, they overbuilt it. And they said it's got an indefinite life on it, which rarely we see engineers say that about <laughs> <Yeah>. anything. So, <laughs> yeah, particularly
0: aircraft, <laughs> right?
1: So they were able to just remanufacture it and call it a zero using the same wing. Wow. zero life airframe from the same wing. So,
0: and did it stop at the B? Is there any talk about a C or is this aircraft?
1: Uh, there might have been talk about a C years ago, but it stopped at the B. Okay. Yeah, the, the B had the AVAB Harrier, the AVAP Harrier Two, and the AVAP Harrier Two okay. Plus. Okay. So it's day attack, night attack. Radar night attack.
0: Gotcha. But then there's some two-seat variants. You alluded to that earlier.
1: There are, yes. So that's the TAV-8B, okay. which is essentially a two-seat version of the day attack that they did put the bigger engine in it, but that's about it. It has no sensors to speak of. It's really a trainer. It, okay. it can use some weapons. Uh, it's just for training purposes, really. Mm-hmm. It's not a combat aircraft. Sure by any means. The idea
0: being though when you're going through training you have an instructor in the back and obviously it makes it a little bit uh, more of a safer process.
1: Absolutely.
0: Uh, I don't know if it's a T, 8 or whatever but there's a guy I guess in North Carolina who owns a two-seat Harrier. He does. You yeah, Art Nalls.
1: Oh yeah, I've sat in his single-seat Harrier. Oh, you he, have? Yes, I have. Yeah. <laughs> he bought the uh, they're former British airplanes. Okay. So they're variants of the GR. I, I don't know what model but mm-hmm. yeah, he flies them at air shows. Uh, he was one of the original test pilots, I think, of the AV-8B. He said he has more engine-out time in a Harrier than any human being because he did all the air start testing for the Harrier. So, <laughs> uh, brave man.
0: Yeah, I hope they gave him hazardous <laughs> duty pay for that. So, yeah, now he has two of these, one single seat, one two-seat, and he flies them to air shows and keeps – that's crazy. He all does. Right. Well, that gives me hope. I think someday I should buy my own F-18. So,
1: <laughs> we'll see. Anyway, awesome. It's, it's not inexpensive. but uh. <laughs> it's
0: not inexpensive. Double. Oh, yeah, okay, I got you. <laughs> All right, so we didn't cover every iteration of the GRs, but like you said, we've got the GRs as well and then the AV, essentially. Okay, and let's go on to armament. Now, I read about nine weapon
1: stations, right? Really, it's got, let's see, seven if you count the center line. Okay. And the nine probably, the British versions have a station on the outrigger okay. uh, where the outrigger wheels go, so they put AIM-9s on there. Mm-hmm. So they do have nine.
0: And then on those weapon stations, what can we carry? Just about everything, seems yeah, like?
1: Yeah, most of the general purpose-type ordnance, mm-hmm. uh, up to 1,000 pounds, they don't carry a 2,000-pounder. Okay. They'll carry, you know, rockets, gun. It has a gun. Internal? Uh, it's not internal. Well, it's okay. m- it's mounted on the bottom, so you can take it on or off. So okay. it's, it's external, but it's in uh, strake, so it doesn't take a uh, weapon station okay. up by putting it on there. Hmm. just adds weight. It's a GAL 12, 25-millimeter, so it's actually pretty big rounds Mm -hmm. uh same gatling gun that's on the side of an ac-130 it's the same same gun as that okay and then uh in the other stations like i said rockets uh missiles like maverick and then you carry your air-to-air weapons uh aim 9 aim 120 Uh, there was really only air-to-air weapons they
0: didn't bother putting an aim 7 on them never uh, they kind of
1: skipped that they didn't have the radars when that was out uh so no uh yeah it's just fox three no no fox one on okay the, on the how about
0: fancy weapons like any kind of harm
1: it does not carry harm okay
0: no. it's not i, really I think the years horse.
1: ago it was a What's sidearm it? i don't know if you ever heard of that <laughs> no. thing it was able to carry sidearm which is essentially a name nine that was harm-like but <laughs> okay. you know the range of the aim nine so yeah and you know the range of surface air systems so us not a fair fight. No, that's not what you're looking for. Like, maybe they thought somebody, it was like a
0: self-defense if you're being shot at by the thing anyway. Maybe. send yeah. something back their way.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if somebody told you to go out and, and you had a seed or deed mission where you're carrying a sidearm, you have yeah. to think that they didn't like you.
0: <laughs> Make sure your paperwork is up to date before you go, yes. right? All right. Uh, what about, as far as you said, general purpose weapons? Can you slap fancy things on them? So laser
1: sure. guided, JDM, yeah, JDM, okay. and laser guided. So it has seventeen sixty uh, wiring for smart weapons like JDM okay. and and Amram, and then obviously uh, the laser guided uh, variants and right. and some of the multi mode variants where they're laser slash GPS guided.
0: Okay, I thought I read. I don't know. Maybe it's the uh, naval version for uh, the UK, but uh, harpoon
1: or some sort of uh, not the US variant. Okay, I don't. Yeah. I'm not sure if the they may, but I don't know.
0: Obviously, that's not really in the Harrier's, uh, again, wheelhouses. You shouldn't be out there looking to take down ships. That should be well, the Navy Well, you know,
1: honestly, things. we did train to that. And and the, the best weapon that we had before that mm-hmm. at one point was the uh, IR Maverick because right. it had a, it. was able to distinguish the heat and the water pretty oh, yeah. good. Mm-hmm. I think we gave all those to the Navy P-3 community so mm-hmm. they can take out the ships. Okay, Yeah, so that was really the weapon probably of choice for any type of anti-shipping.
0: Okay. How about cluster munitions before they fell in the favor? Yeah, yeah absolutely, okay. cluster
1: munitions, and I've dropped quite a few in combat actually. I, so, yeah. Oh,
0: okay. Great. Well, how about performance? I mean, how high? How fast? How many G's have you been in this thing?
1: Uh, I've been up to forty-one thousand feet trying to okay. get over thunderstorms, but it's an air breather, so it's it's a, I guess it would be a medium bypass turbofan, but uh, okay. it doesn't go quite. You know, it's not F twenty two like a, uh, not even like Hornet. I guess I would say. Uh, it starts to suffer a little bit. And also the wing, mm-hmm. uh, so it, every aircraft obviously doesn't turn great up at those altitudes, but it seems to struggle a little bit more. And I've, mm-hmm. I used to have to go up and when I did functional check flights up to those altitudes okay. to make sure everything was working properly. Speed-wise, it's transonic, so it's not a supersonic airplane. Okay. Uh, most probably call it subsonic, but technically it's transonic. Uh, it goes up to 1.0 you know, on paper.
0: What's the closest uh, you saw? You know, I've gotten to
1: 0.94, <laughs> and it started doing a – just straight and level, and it started just doing a slight rhythmic wing rock at 1.94. I think that's yeah, probably you're, – you're starting to have some shock-induced flow separation on the wing, and that's not <laughs> good because the probe is actually mounted externally on the left outside of the intake. So you, you have a little – probe? Yes. Okay. That causes, I think, a little asymmetric ah. uh, issues with the uh, airplane just mm-hmm. – yeah,
0: it's. <laughs> you reached your comfort limit. Yeah, there. it was okay. A
1: little bit slower than that. All yeah. right.
0: How about G's? How's what's the most you ever pulled in it?
1: Seven and a half for me, but it, okay. it was uh, up to eight G rated. Oh, okay. Which isn't shabby, but it would bleed rapidly. So right. it, it, the wing shape was not.
0: I never had a chance to fight one. Did you guys do much swirling? I mean, and is it pretty good in a dogfight?
1: You know, I fought hornets before. I mean, it. I would say it's not looked at as one of the premier dogfighters in the world. You know, in the hands of the right person, it had very uh, harsh high speed departure characteristics. Slow speed, it's fine; it's very benign. But high speed, I've seen some bad things, (laughs) not personally (laughs) from other people. Heard heard of high speed, and it's not very good with loaded rolls. So if somebody puts a lot high speed and does a loaded roll, it'll Mm -hmm. it could come. I've seen somebody go 340 degrees in a second. Uh, just swap ends from a high-speed departure. Wow. So that was kind of rough. and okay. they, they rub the engine. The engine rubs so was an engine pull. So it really it's, depends on the pilot as mm-hmm. anything. Sure. If the pilot can fly it towards its limits, it'll do decent, but it won't. Uh, Hornet's much better. i fought them. I mean, again, pilot dependent, but right. you take the same pilot level in both airplanes, and, and a Hornet's is definitely a better fighter for sure. Okay.
0: Did you use the nozzles in a fight?
1: Very limited situations. Okay. Um, you know and i used to teach as an air combat instructor i would teach this and if guys can't fly to the conventional limits of the airplane because they're still trying to get that good then there's no reason to use the nozzles because you bleed mm-hmm. rapidly so you lose a lot of your energy but there's certain times so if you get in a very slow speed fight you can bring a little bit in and that will actually help because as i mentioned before you're uh flight control surfaces which is you obviously get slower Mm -hmm. your aerodynamic flight controls are less effective the ducks can actually help you and then you can get a little bit of extra pitch so if you're maybe getting close to a shot or something like that you can get a a quick but it's a sacrifice so you Mm -hmm. better take it to survive or you take (laughs) it to get that shot but if you just take it and you're not getting anything like that out of it then you're just bleeding for no reason so
0: About energy addition, can it get speed back pretty quickly or no?
1: No, no, okay, not at all.
0: Pretty big wing, it seems like
1: it does, it does. And it's an air breather, it does better down low. Mm. Um, It loses performance probably more rapidly than most jets going uphill. So, okay,
0: no one ever likes this part, but strengths and weaknesses. So, I'm trying to rebrand this into what did you really love about the aircraft, and what if you had enough money would you have fixed that for whatever reason they never fixed?
1: You know, I think most of what they can fix in terms of its reliability, and it's had some reliability challenges. I think the biggest thing about uh, weaknesses are it's very maintenance-intensive. It's very difficult. It uh, needed a lot more engine changes than probably most airplanes that I've noticed. And the engine changes were significantly challenging because oh you would have to take the wing, the entire wing, yeah. off the top with a crane and then lift the engine out from the top. And that's extremely intrusive to the airplane. It took <laughs> yeah. a lot of man hours. I would think. Everything in that airplane is jammed in there pretty tightly. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, as I mentioned before, the the hot exhaust, which is the rear nozzles, blow over all the avionics and your heat of your airplane. So... It requires a lot of man hours. The maintenance guys are the heroes of that airplane. Yeah. By far. Well,
0: I would say you could say that about almost every airplane. Because, that, that's true. You know, and and <laughs> that's I've owed true. the listener also an episode on our maintainers because oh, they are yeah. the heroes. And I definitely need to get them on here. That is. Do you remember an advertised man hour per flight hour type of
1: rate? Oh, you know, I don't remember right now, okay. but it was pretty high. You know, engine change, I think they listed like 400 man hours. And oh, that's right. assuming you don't have any problems yeah. in, in the engine change.
0: Well, that was like an A-4, though, where you literally pulled the airplane in half. I mean, on an F-18, you can roll a rack or whatever you'd call the thing under an engine and drop it out of there, and it's no big deal. But on a Harrier, it's almost like the very skeleton of the aircraft, it seems like. It
1: is. And you had to use cranes to lift everything out, and it's very tightly put in the aircraft. So it's not forgiving to pilot error. It's also not very forgiving to maintenance error Hmm. as well. Single-engine airplane, yeah, you know, and then on the— Weaknesses side of the tactical portion, as I mentioned, the heat goes all back down the side of the airplane, but that also makes the whole back side of the airplane kind of hot, not just the tail, like all the way aft, the middle of the airplane. <laughs> so it's fairly, uh, it's a big target for any kind of heat seeking right. type of thing, which is um, where you guys are down rooting around, right? And it's, it's it has okay. you know no, I mean it's also a giant radar reflector. It's got big fan blades in the front. It's but it does carry a lot of expendables, you know, more than average, like 180. Uh, oh. So a few chaps and flares yeah okay and it it needs them so it's good (laughs) (laughs) and it's not supersonic uh you know it's uh doesn't have longest legs but it is pilot vehicle interface Mm -hmm. probably one of the best i've seen and that includes the f-35 i would say it's better than the f-35 not in the sensors it has but in just the interaction between the pilot and the aircraft really it is actually impressive and we've had a lot of hornet guys come over to the simulator from the weapons school and actually we were quite impressed with how mm-hmm. well everything was laid out and set up for the pilot mm-hmm. so i think it was good at that it was great at close air support you have great visibility that bubbly canopy that also adds a lot of drag so you can look down at where you're landing also it gives you you're almost kind of sitting in the clouds you nice. know kind of sitting up high and yeah. so it's good for close air support good for the mission it does you know and and there are sacrifices for the Mm stovel capability Mm -hmm. just in terms of like i said how the airplanes put together on the maintenance side and weight because it can only be so heavy and Mm -hmm. so it can vertically land speaking of that that.
0: i've always wondered did you guys have a procedure in your pocket checklist for find a place to land and land or does does it have to be
1: certain surfaces so well it depends on what kind of landing and (laughs) one of the interesting things about air is you can do anything from a vertical landing to a conventional landing and everywhere in between. Okay. So yes, if you're going to do a vertical landing, you need to land on sealed concrete concrete uses in blocks. So if there's no seal between the blocks, the actual pressure will build up and lift the block out. <laughs> wow. So, okay. just, yeah, so that's not good. Aluminum matting works mm. uh, as well as, you know, the sh- flight deck of ships. But if, if, Like asphalt, it'll melt the asphalt. However, if you keep five knots of forward speed, it'll not melt the asphalt. So you can, as long as you have some forward velocity, Mm -hmm. you can kind of keep the asphalt from melting. And and most airports don't like it if you destroy their airports.
0: No, I would think not. (laughs) But if you're just flying along and you have a problem that's, you know what, I need to probably either land or I may have to eject soon. Was there either a procedure official or otherwise ready room banter about look for a decent blank part of the highway and yep roads yeah Yeah? you can you can
1: easily land on a road like i said if you get five knots of forward speed you can land there so you're not you know nobody wants to land on a highway and then like conventionally at you know 140 knots and then try to stop Mm -hmm. who knows what car but if you're going five knots it's pretty easy to stop once you land so yes that has always been in a thought process of any harrier pilot if you get in a situation like that i think there was a story, I've seen a picture of it and heard the back stories before my time of somebody actually landing at, out at some farm. Like and, to see their folks or something? No, I think it was an emergency. Okay, uh, <laughs> good. And uh, they, they went out there, changed the engine, and they took off. Uh, they fixed the airplane and took off. For, you know It's like a grass takeoff, which they used to practice uh, that, and the British used to do that even more. Okay. They used to do grass. Getting back to the
0: first tops. point you made about the Cold War.
1: Right. Okay, so, it went hot. Yeah, it does have some other outs, I guess, if you will. You know, if the airport's uh, not available. <laughs>
0: okay. You know, I forgot to put it on the agenda here, Magwa. Can we talk about ship ops real quick? Yeah, sure. So the British have ski ramps. We yes. don't. What does that offer? And why don't you think we ever did it?
1: Well, it offers you to uh, take off with less takeoff roll mm-hmm. and with more weight. Uh, so it offers you better performance okay. for your takeoff. It's uh, a significant boost in your uh, ability to get airborne with, you know, given weight. We did not do that because our ships don't have that built into them, Mm -hmm. Uh, those ships were designed, the the British ships, for Harriers as the primary platform. But when we go on a Mew, the Harrier is not the primary platform. It is a platform, and there's a lot of helicopters on that ship. Mm -hmm. And a ski ramp takes a lot of the parking space off of the deck because you can't really park anything on on the ramp. So we lose a lot of space on the deck, and that's really why hmm. it kind of okay. becomes an issue for us.
0: So when you're on a, an amphibious ship and you go to do your takeoff run, what are you doing in the cockpit? Are the nozzles in one position the whole time, and you're just changing the throttle, or are you moving uh, nozzles too? Because so, you're not on a catapult like I am in my F-18.
1: Right. Okay. That's correct. So you're just on a center line, basically the tram line. You're mm-hmm. just on that tram line. You do some engine run, up some checks, and then once they tap the deck, the— Launch officer, he'll tap the deck and launch you. And then you go, your nozzles are at, uh, I believe it was 10 degrees. Yeah, for the ship takeover, it was 10 degrees. Okay. And you just go full power, and you keep it tracking down the tram line just with your own. Sure. You have to do it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then as you reach what there's a perpendicular line at the end of the ship. It's called the, the nozzle rotation line. It's Once you reach that, you move the nozzles to a set position it can be 55, 60, something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's already calculated for you. They've done it up in the tower. Right. And a guy holds a board before, and he tells you, based on your weight, and then you make sure it all matches what you're thinking, and then it tells you exactly oh. what nozzling will set. And you set a little stop there, like a temporary stop sure. on your nozzle lever, and then you just pull it back to that stop. Nice. It, off the uh, Yeah. Okay. And then it also tells you what trim to set, so uh, the airplane will seek the right attitude right. once it okay. comes off the deck.
0: Did you find this to be, I mean, for me, hearing it for the first time, it sounds kind of complex and maybe a little bit harrowing. I mean, was it routine after a while for you guys, or Uh, was there any part of it that was?
1: The fear there is that you lose some kind of thrust because you, you know, but it'd be like a cold catch shot. You know, that'd be like, you know, you're riding the silk at that point, obviously. Uh, But, you know, the L-class ships have a flat bottom, and they bounce around a little bit more, I think, than the CVs. But all the ships bounce around, and you know how it is. So when the nose pitches down, they... If you have a good launch officer who's done it for a little while, he'll time it right. So when you come off the deck, it's on an upswing of the bow. Oh, of the ship and the waves. But <laughs> if you don't, he'll see the upswing in the bow, then tap the deck. But by the time you get to the end of the deck, it's already <laughs> going down. And so you launch straight at the water, which is very uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Cause you guys are probably lower, closer to the water on those ships than on a carrier.
1: Yeah, about 50 feet 50, off the okay. LHS. I think 60 on the LHDs yep. or so. But okay. yes.
0: So you go out, you do your mission. When it's time to come back, on fixed you didn't do any fixed wing stuff, right? Harrier, or hornets, I mean, or anything.
1: No. Okay. No, no.
0: But you're probably familiar from your career. So for us coming back in the daytime landings were a challenge, but they're you know they got to the point where they were fun. Night landings were never fun. Didn't matter how many years <laughs> of experience you had. What's landing a Harrier like for you guys? Is it again just kind of a task to do, oh, on or was the ship? there an element? Yeah. Of, yeah. Of, of danger or fear. Well, yeah,
1: you know. Like anything, right? Mm-hmm. If the conditions are uh good and the sea state's nice, and then it's not too bad. Well, it's different than the land. For one, you're going to have an LSO in there who's on the radio with you the whole time. Is he a pilot um, like you? He is. he's okay. a, he has, It is a qualification that pilots right. get. It's a duty that you yeah. have for that day. Yeah, we've whatever. talked
0: about it. Similar for the F eighteen and carrier stuff.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Very similar to that. Although the, in this, the pilot's up in the tower, so he's almost at your. Eye level when you're crossing the deck, he's kind of up there, and uh, you're basically hovering, but the ship's moving, so you're flying formation off the ship hmm. in a hover. Wow. So instead of like a a land base hover where that you're just stopping and right. you, you're actually still moving, but you zero out the relative motion, like you know, like formation. And... You're moving at
0: the same speed as the ship, right? Ways. Okay,
1: exactly. So you stay over the same spot, and and then the uh, the LSO will clear you to land, mm-hmm. which then you set your rated descent and you just come down and land and it also tries to time that you know and and get you in a good spot and then you just try to keep it centered and land if the ship's moving a lot (laughs) it becomes a little trickier right for one of the spots there's a hover position indicator but it's not roll stabilized so if the ship's moving it's fairly useless okay and you can't just keep chasing the formation flying off the ship when it's rolling. So you just have to look out at the horizon and just try to keep that level. Jeez. Yeah, so, and this, All right. And then trust the LSO when you come yeah. down that it, it's going to work out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, so I'm going to expose my naivete here, Magwa. In my F-18, once I roll into the groove or at night coming in close, I mean, I need forward velocity to fly. Right. Can't you just stop, go back up a few feet? Go away. I mean, I can also take my own wave off. We don't generally yeah. want to do that. But I mean, I'm kind of committed is what I'm saying. And I'm not trying to say I'm better because I flew an F-18. But if you don't like how it's going, can you just add a power and go back up a few feet? Or once you start coming down, are you pretty well committed?
1: You can. Typically, probably doesn't happen so much. I mean, you're constantly manipulating the power and all the controls to keep right. keep your position. But uh-huh. once you start coming down, you set your rate of ascent and and then you catch it and can keep it where it's at. Yeah. So if you got too much rate of ascent... Or the LSO says hover, uh, basically he's telling you get back up to your okay. stabilized hover and you would add power and climb back up. Typically it doesn't have one sail, so clears you land as long as you just okay. set your risk. You, you don't need to do that, but you can. You don't have a lot of fuel because you have to be low enough on fuel. So you need greater than a one-to-one thrust of weight mm. to hover. Once you're low enough on fuel, you don't have a lot of excess gas because you have already burned down to a, a weight that is already calculated and every jet has its own based on its particular engine performance, its own hover mm-hmm. calculations. You cross that deck at a certain state, fuel state, fuel and water state mm-hmm. and time, and Charlie time, right? But it doesn't usually give you a lot to uh, go around the pattern and say, mm-hmm. uh, so you're fairly committed. You have a little bit of time in the hover, sure. but but… And it also depends on how hot it is outside. So the hotter it is, the less weight you can carry, the right. lower fuel state you have when you cross that deck. You get to pretty much be trick-or-treat at, at the uh, huh. the yeah. landing. So.
0: Very similar concepts. But I'm guessing you don't have a tanker hanging out overhead for you guys, right? That's correct. Okay.
1: Although they're talking about making variants of the uh, V-22. Really? Yeah, uh, okay. refueling capability. <laughs> so. All
0: right. Well, maybe that may that'll change. be a future opportunity. Okay. <laughs> So if you took off with a, say, full combat load, or maybe even, it doesn't have to be that much, but in other words, if you have a problem, you can't just turn around and come back. You either have to jettison some bombs or burn down your fuel or possibly both.
1: Exactly. Okay. Yeah. And again, it depends on, you know, if you're in a cold climate, you may be able to bring sure. some of the ordnance back, but certainly the fuel, you're, I couldn't think of a time when you have enough performance, really? even on the best of days wow. to hover with a, full load of fuel on the, right. in the airplane. You would have to...
0: Now, you can back at the field because you can do a rolling, like, conventional style. Sure. Y- okay. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, right. y- you can...
0: But you yeah, don't do you, that kind of landing on the boat even as a contingency?
1: Never. It's not... They will have you punch out before you even try that. Wow. Really? So
0: yeah. Okay. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I've learned a lot about this airplane. It's pretty cool. How about notoriety? Where would... So, the F-14 has Top Gun, and Top Gun has the F-14. Where would viewers of uh, movies have seen the Harrier.
1: Well, true lies is probably the yeah. Of course. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody's <laughs> right. And uh, the Marine Corps actually flew airplanes in support of that movie. Oh, I'm sure. So, yeah. yeah. That looked re- like uh, real flying. I mean, it was, Yeah, with, there was some of it was real yeah, flying, not yeah, all of it obviously. Not with The part where they were uh, hovering by and shooting the gun into the building, that Uh, was not, that was all Hollywood. That was not real (laughs) flying. Marine Corps did not do that.
0: What about the uh, AIM-9 that launches the bad guy? That's realistic. Yeah. yeah.
1: I'm I'm pretty sure Marine Corps didn't do that either, but. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, True Lies is one of my
0: favorites. I thought it was well represented. Yeah. I mean, they're hosing bullets into the water when the uh, truck is on the bridge or whatever, but you know. Yeah. I also love that Hollywood thinks that we just fly around fully armed all the time. Right. Harry, yeah, uh, sorry, Mavericks and, and Bullets and all
1: that. Right, yeah, just for random <laughs> trading, Yeah, Okay. Always.
0: Otherwise, it has been in Iraq and Afghanistan as long as we've been there. It was involved in the Falklands. You started talking about that, and I think that was right after the early model came out, right? Didn't it go down, like, right away and get involved?
1: I don't know how long after, mm-hmm. but it was early in its development. But that was its really big, its kind of first big debut. You know, Yeah, it was, yeah. and it did a good job you know, shooting down A-4s and Super A-10 darts that the Argentinians had. And some of them got shot down too, some of the carriers, but they were kind of defending the ships.
0: (laughs) Yeah, well, yeah, that's what needed to be done at the time. I guess some other notoriety, although not particularly positive, is that a squadron in Afghanistan was involved in what they call the greatest loss of aircraft in one setting, or maybe Marine aircraft, since Vietnam on the way over you were saying did you know the
1: oh yeah training officer of that i did uh yeah a great friend of mine yeah so this was uh, camp
0: bastion western i think it is afghanistan yeah 2016
1: 2015 15 uh, no 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 i'm sorry no anyway. it's, been, it's been long that it's okay. uh 2013
0: so we had a four deployed squadron of harriers and uh just give us a quick summary of what happened there
1: yeah so uh six harriers they were all on deck and, and that's all of the harriers that they mm-hmm. had brought on this detachment, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Chris Rabel was a commanding officer of the squadron. The bad guys infiltrated the uh, base by posing in you know U.S. military clothes, fatigue, mm-hmm. you know camouflage All utilities, right. and uh, got through the uh, the ISAF was guarding the perimeter at the time.
0: That's the wait International Security Assistance Force, right? So okay. various countries who right, right. contribute, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, so whatever countries they they provide some security yeah. forces there. But in any case they got through the wire it was nighttime and uh they actually got right up to the Harriers, put machine guns under the wings and were shooting into the hangar at the uh Marines who were mechanics and such, you know, hmm. aircraft mechanics who weren't armed at the time. Uh so everybody's running for cover and uh and chaos,
0: I'm sure. Yeah, and, mm-hmm.
1: and uh technical Colonel Rabel went back had his driver go back to his uh Billeting and grab his weapon and you know went out and kind of led from the front like he was known to do like his his completely his personality but unfortunately again an RPG got too close to him and uh, gave him a fatal wound and him and uh, Sergeant Bradley Atwater they were the two that uh, passed away but it, all the bad guys died okay. unfortunately all the Harriers were destroyed as well so mm. that would, you know yeah. we were shooting basically. To kill him, we had to sure. destroy the Harriers.
0: Yeah, yeah, that must have been a tough loss. But man, true to the Marine Corps, I bet they love him because that's I, when I think of you guys. That's what I think of. I wouldn't expect anything less. He
1: especially as embodied the embodied the spirit of the Marine Corps and everything he did. I remember we were both weapons school instructors at the same time, mm-hmm. and new students, you know, show up and he he uh, walked up to one of the new students. He was actually in the Hornet uh, shop, you know, big eyes. Oh, you know, I'm a weapons school. I'm a, you know, it's, it's the hazing part, I guess, but <laughs> he poked him in the chest, just, it's kind of how he was, he mm-hmm. was just kind of messing with him a little bit, but he goes, when I see the enemy, I run towards him, what do you do, and it always stuck with me, because that's how he died, hmm. which is very interesting, because wow. that's, that's how he lived his life, and, you know, the, of course, the student looked at him, and was like, sir, but, you know, kind of big, I was like, I don't know, is this a trick question, he started uh, yeah. thinking about how he's supposed to answer it, anyway, wow. he was just messing with him, but, but that's, yeah, that's what he did, he charged at the enemy, uh, you know, led from the front, and, Unfortunately, you know, he passed away, but... uh, Did he leave a family? He did, yeah. Yeah. Two daughters and a son and his wife. Oh, gosh.
0: That's tough to hear, but, you know, that is the world we live in, and he did his duty. Yeah, he did,
1: uh, and he did it well. He was a great pilot, a great man. Cool.
0: Well, we always ask for a good sea story. That's one, but I guess it didn't (laughs) really involve you. You got any exciting stories from your time in the Harrier? Did you... uh...
1: Yeah, one of the most exciting, I think. wasn't the kind of good kind of exciting, I guess, but uh, Uh it was... uh, well, I mean, I had a lot of excitement. I mean, we got you know, shot at a lot in our war. But uh, mm. just coming back from a six-hour flight in Iraq, you know, we refueled and we got like 600 miles north. And wow. bottom, we were coming back to Kuwait, al Jabr, Kuwait, uh, in the early part of the war. And uh, the weather forecast, plus or minus an hour, was VFR. So we came back with VFR fuel. Now, bad on me is I didn't double-check after six hours. I probably should have <laughs> okay. maybe asked the AWACS to check back, you know, mm-hmm the uh, weather was. Easy to say now. Easy to say now, right? (laughs) I can look back and go armchair quarterback. It It was nighttime. It was probably like three, four in the morning. And uh, even the approach controller on the radio told us the weather was above. It was not VFR, but it was above the minimums for the TACAN. And they had removed the temporary uh, PAR that they had set up. The Marine Corps had already pulled it out. So we were coming back with a TACAN. Well, it's above minimums. And I have a budding section lead who's doing... Practice. He's out in front practicing, so I'm really the flight lead, but he's okay. practicing. And he asked what to do. I said I will take radar trail on you, and and we'll shoot the approach and, and land. So I'm a mile behind him on the approach, and uh, we're going through. And you, you can't see anything; it's dark. And as we get lower and lower, and we're again, we have VFR fuel, so we don't really have a lot of options. There's Ali Saline, which is 30 miles away, but we're in a oh, they call them a shamal, We're in a sandstorm. Mm. And to the point where we had to turn off all of our exterior lights because they were blinding us, you know, from the blinking lights in the sandstorm. The winds started picking up, and Harry, you can see the external winds, and mm-hmm. it was it was really high, and they abandoned the tower uh, because the winds were too high. So the tower, like, was gone. <laughs> they left? They left. <laughs> so I'm like, this is not good. Yeah. And he's like, what do you do? I said, okay, I now know that Ali al Salim is the same weather. And this is one of those times where you talk about where, like, well, roads— And I'm thinking, if I eject, you know, I'm going to die, brother, because, you know, I'm going to hit the ground. The winds are like 70 miles an hour. It's going to drag me to my death, and nobody's going to find me, and I'm going to hit the ground. It's like jumping out of a car on a freeway. So fortunately, with a Harrier, you were able to slow down. Mm -hmm. So I said, slow it down. He's like, I don't see the runway. I said, okay, I know there's no obstructions out here. It's the desert. Keep going lower, but, you know, watch your altitude and keep looking for it. And we slowed down to about 60 knots, and— you know, an attack in is not the most, pre- it's not a precision approach. Right. So, you know, it's got good GPS. So you're kind of backing it up with that. And then you're flying the attack in direction, but we're now below the mid descent altitude on that, looking for the runway. We both found it and landed with, you know, no tower. And on the taxi back, it, it kept getting worse the whole time. And on wow. the taxi back, I couldn't see my wingman at all. I couldn't even see his lights when he turns lights back on because the sandstorm was so bad. Wow. So I was very fortunate. And then, on the radio, I heard, uh, oh, I'm sorry. I called the approach controller and said, mm-hmm. yeah, your weather that you reported is not accurate. <laughs> you can't send anybody here. Mm-hmm. We had to slow down 60 knots and land. And they told an A-10 flight, hey, did you hear that? They said, yeah, we're going to go to Yali because they can't mm-hmm. you know, go 60 knots. Our base actually had me go up, back out in the jet after I shut down and taxi out to get better radio reception just on the field and talk to our other flight that was a half hour behind us and give them direction to land somewhere else, not even come back here. And they both, they went to the tanker. The A-10s did not break out at Al-Yasalim. They all got to the tanker at the same time with the Harriers and the A-10s. And they had a discussion over who was worse off on fuel. I guess the A-10s determined they were because it's a different type of tanking. So mm-hmm. they had to, it was a KC-10 that had both types. And then uh, the A-10s did get fuel and went to Bahrain. And then the Harriers, they raised the boom, let the drogue out, and it was sour. So they oh, couldn't geez. get gas, and they were almost out of fuel. They jettisoned their Mavericks and their drop tanks, and that's when they were looking at roads in Iraq. And I was passing them all the information because we'd never intended to land there. So here's the frequencies. Here's this. That field got hit by lightning right before they were coming in, so it lost all of its electricity. Oh, and uh, they used the navigational flare in the Harrier, which is a one to one, but it, to find the runway uh-huh. and just landed on the runway, I'm not talking to anybody because oh, they lost all their power. So that was a rough night. But we got all the Harriers landed, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we all lived. And There you go. That's we a win. All, yeah, that was.
0: <laughs> Holy cow. Wow.
1: <laughs> that was a scary one. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> I would say that sounds a lot like the equivalent of a nasty pitching deck on a night carrier. So, wow, Magwa, that's crazy. What did you end up landing with fuel-wise? I mean, was uh, it down
1: to. I landed with probably, I don't know, like 1,000 pounds. It was not too bad okay. because I had VFR fuel. Mm-hmm. The problem is I really didn't have any fuel to go anywhere else. Right. Well, it's you not like the I could have turned down when and kept sight of the field either. Right. So I think we got down to maybe 150, 200 feet, which is below tack admins, but, mm-hmm. and mins. And then the sandstorm, you could see down better than you could see uh, horizontally. Sure. So once we got over the field. But you're, you're going 60 knots, you can still make a play for it. And you don't need the entire runway to stop. So even if you break out you know, halfway down the runway, you can still get it on the ground mm-hmm. and stop it.
0: You have a few so, more
1: options. Right. Okay. So that was where the hair kind of came in and uh, was, was my friend that day. <laughs> yeah, I would say so.
0: Well, Magwa, this has been a lot of fun, and I say this every episode. I'm sure we could go on and on. We barely talked about, for example, the cockpit. Just very quickly, is it old round gauges, or do you got some displays? No, no, it's
1: it's got two multi-purpose okay. color displays. Nice HUD. Yeah, it's pretty pretty decent. Pretty good. Hands yeah. on
0: throttling stick. Yeah, it is pretty okay. good.
1: And uh, you'd probably appreciate this in the mission planning side. Mm-hmm. Still, the F thirty five didn't even have this. Uh, in mission planning, you can go onto the map. which has got a color moving map in the, nice. in the cockpit. Uh-huh. You can go draw lines. You can type text. You can put all sorts of symbols and displays and sam rings and whatever you want on huh. this display and it'll show up on your cockpit when you're flying which is brilliant i like yeah. wow this is great it's like you know having a drawing program and you can have it show sure. up in your map and i don't know why that they haven't it's done that on newer airplanes
0: you just have a data transfer device you carry on your flight suit and then throw the jet when you get there yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. now it's like a pcmcia card. That, that's right thing,
0: yeah. Yep. okay Well, this has been a lot of fun. I learned a lot about the Harrier. I'm sure the listener did too. Really want to thank you for your time today. And I'm jealous that you get to go fly (laughs) something fun and fast later. Uh, Before we let you go, I mean, you've got a good thing going and you're living here in Las Vegas. I mean, what's the future hold? Just keep doing what you're doing?
1: Yeah. You know, I have enjoyed, I've been flying uh, A-4s primarily for Mm -hmm. the last five years in the L-159 and, you know, it's supporting Air Force Weapons School and also Marine Corps. So I've been doing close air support. You're still doing casts, uh, still, still <laughs> dropping bombs. Actually, wow. yeah. So we're both the Navy and the Marine Corps, which is uh, a yeah. kind of interesting when you're retired and you you, know, you press the pickle button. Sometimes I got to pinch myself. I still get to do that, but yeah, this is fun and and just yeah. doing the fighter thing, uh, going out on the Nellis ranges and being the bad guy. So now it's all you know, bad guys. So that are simulating mm-hmm. bad guy type airplanes.
0: Well, well we need to do an episode on. Companies like Draken. And I know I've spoken with some of your peers over there, Carlos and others. And I think the listener might find it very interesting that there are companies instead of squadrons, frankly, that are out doing what you guys do and actually dropping bombs. I mean, all, all this is for training. Absolutely. But you're dropping bombs, you're acting as bad guys for various players. And dude, I tell you what. If I either lived here or you guys were in San Diego as much as you are here, I I'd, I'd, I think I'd come over and play because uh, that would be a lot of fun.
1: But. Yeah, it is
0: cool. So you're doing that, and you're gonna keep doing it as long as your body will allow. I mean, yeah, how, how's your I, neck?
1: I yeah. It's, sometimes it's I, I've had some neck you know soreness here and there, like, but uh, you know, just yeah. like anything pulling, Gs, you start yeah. to yeah, definitely get older. But we we have people older than me. I know our average age in, in our company is I'm probably on the younger side of the average age. <laughs> Yeah, it's a, kind of a geriatric 50 squadron. 50 the but, new uh, 30, right? But that's right. Hey, <laughs> you know, no substitute for uh, experience, I guess. So. Cool.
0: Excellent. And uh, I forgot to ask you, how many years of service? 27 if you include my enlisted wow. time. absolutely. Yeah, whole, we do.
1: yeah so 27. Good.
0: Fantastic. Well, on behalf of the listener, thank you for your 27 years of service. How many flight hours in the military?
1: That's a good question. You said about, what'd you say? Yeah, H? just over 2,000. Okay. Yeah, just, just over 2,000.
0: 2,000. Yeah. Thank you for that as well. And before we let you go, we have to ask you about how someone, or maybe you, depending on what happened, came up with a call sign MAGWA.
1: Huh. So when I was in flight school, you yeah, know, I was a little more probably from my grunt days, but I was high and tight and mm-hmm. my uh, big Roman nose here. So it kind of looked <laughs> like the uh, last of the Mohicans, you know, the the mean Indian with the the Mohawk. Yeah. And then I kind of further ingrained that, just, you know, went to weapons school, so the standards and, you know, being a...
0: You took things very seriously? Is that what you're trying to say? uh,
1: Yeah, I've lightened (laughs) up over the years, I think. But uh, yeah, I I got a little bit of reputation. My young captains would call it getting tomahawked, but um, I just kept the standards high and and they all rose to it and did a great job. So You don't look Native American. uh, No, I'm not, but... uh, (laughs) all right i don't get my hair cut high and tight anymore either so i certainly don't (laughs) yeah there's no
0: need to i mean that's a young man's game yes it is awesome magua this has been a lot of fun i've learned a lot thanks for your time thanks for your service thanks for still sporting the united states military and unless you got any parting shots i think we can wrap this up and get out of here
1: no i appreciate joe thanks for the opportunity it's great great to be here and uh, uh of all the airplanes i flew i'd like to say the harrier was still the most fun just sticking rudder flying loved it great plane
3: outstanding all right buddy thanks thanks oh man jello so uh listening to magua there absolutely loved a lot of things about the interview but i didn't really realize there is a lot of water and didn't realize there's about 90 seconds of use out of that did you No,
0: i'd heard they used water before but i never understood quite until he explained it the depth that they have here and Yeah, it seems to me watching air shows that they sit there for a lot longer. But of course, when it's that noisy and you're watching it and you're amazed, I suppose time slows down a little bit. But yeah, that's pretty cool. And particularly distilled water. That makes sense. You know, anything that needs water generally, you want to put distilled water in it because otherwise all the minerals and everything else gums up the system. But yeah, that just seems like one extra thing you have to worry about, especially when you go to those forward operating bases like you talked about.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That and I, it was, I thought it was neat. You're right. It was kind of twofold reason for the water, right? So we talked about the, or he talked about the greater RPM, you know, keeping the the engine cooler, if you will, but also just the idea of adding mass to the thrust or adding mass to the exit mm-hmm. velocity increases the thrust. Right. Right? So it was very cool. I thought really enjoy that. How about you? Any kind of highlights? Oh gosh, the whole thing was fun and it was kind of
0: a <laughs> wham-bam trip. I went out in the morning. He picked me up to Vegas from San Diego. Uh, we went to a studio there locally, recorded and he, oh, and then we right. went and got a bite to eat and dropped me back at the airport. So it was a lot of fun. And I might head back out there because that company, Draken, they've got a bunch of other guys who flew aircraft that we need here on the show. So uh, we might be back. Oh, so, fantastic. Yeah. But you might notice one thing too, Sunshine. We didn't really cover too much why it looks the way it does and that's because you and I yeah. had covered that previously I think on what a deep dive
3: we did you're right on stability we talked about anhedral dihedral and all that goodness mm-hmm. Vort- I think did we talk about vortex generators at one point two, maybe oh gosh no, I, I don't know, know. well anyway. we'll re yeah. yeah, potato, potato, whatever. Well, we're rebranding the
0: whole deep dive anyway here, and you and I are still working on that, so we'll come yeah. back around to that. Now, I do want to mention that the DCS players in the audience, Sunshine, will uh, have a special surprise from Razbam, Bam, developers of the DCS Harrier module, which is one of the most popular modules because of its amazing attention to detail. Uh, they are providing us three copies of the Harrier module for us to give away. Nice. So if you're a fan of the AV-8B but do not yet have the Harrier module, then you'll definitely want to sign up and start. Will be in the show notes and also on all of our social media platforms.
3: Angelo, didn't uh, one of our own team members, right, Baltic Dragon, didn't he have a lot to do with those interactive training missions? Yeah. especially the Harrier model. Oh, yeah,
0: absolutely. In fact, just today, as we're recording this, we posted an update on our Facebook page about some of the different things that he's done to get us ready for the Harrier episode. And so, yeah, we're going to give away three of those, and people can check out his training videos and get good at the Av8 on their computers. Very cool. Okay, on the phone with us today is episode 33 guest Ricky Savage, who joined us last December to explain all about the Wingman Foundation. Ricky, how's it going?
5: It's going well, Jello. Thanks for having us back on the show.
0: Sure thing. So I just wanted to give the listeners an update on what you guys have been up to. So what's new at the Wingman Foundation?
5: So we've been pretty busy in 2019. Fortunately, we haven't had too many mishaps to respond to, so it's been giving us the ability to kind of build out the organization. And from your last show, we were able to recruit some more quality volunteers and subsequently be able to stand up our social media presidents, also our comm shop. Uh, We've been able to have two editions of our Wingman newsletter actually hit the street at this point, What tells uh, the fleet exactly what we're up to. Uh, A couple of things I'd like to hit on that we've done so far this year is... uh, For our first ever New River, North Carolina Memorial 5K, which we did to memorialize one of our lost uh, staff sergeant, T.J. Dudley, as well as our actual D.C. Memorial Walk Series. It's the biggest uh, success we've had so far. We not only had the D.C. Walk Series in Washington, D.C., but multiple satellites to include Lemoore and uh, overseas in Iwakuni, Japan as well as being able to focus a little bit more on our physical memorials, which allows us to stop for a moment and memorialize our fallen. Pensacola Memorial Bell Tower was rededicated earlier this year. That represents all of Marines that are lost in aviation. And two months ago, we were able to go to Mount Soledad and remember Head officer first class, John Clement, who we lost from HSC 85, uh, an aviation ground mishap. So we've been actually been able to focus solely or not solely, but a lot on our build out, but also turning to what we really like to do in memorials our fallen.
0: Outstanding. And you have been busy responding to recent mishaps as well.
5: Yes. So we've responded to four mishaps this year. Two air mishaps, two ground mishaps. Uh, the latest was VFA 151. I'd like to stop here and praise some people. I recently started working on project development, and uh, our new mishap coordinator, Lindsay Lampkin, had to deal with two mishaps in basically 14 days. HSC 85 had a second-class petty officer lost at sea. And then VFA 151 experienced that mishap on July 31st. The uh, mishap team themselves was able to get both of those mishaps surrounded pretty quickly, getting contact with the commands and the families. And it was kind of neat for me because I was able to watch it from the outside and just watch how this organization treats these people. So we are always humbled and honored to do these things, but we were able to get into those things fast and we know that the families are supported.
0: Right. And if people want to learn more about the Wingman Foundation, where should they go?
5: Sure. Well, uh, our website, uh, wingmanfoundation.org. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. And if you can, please sign up for our newsletter. Every three months, we'll put that out and let people know exactly what we're up to and what our upcoming events uh, we intend on putting on will be.
0: Outstanding. And we're happy to support you here at the Fighter Pilot Podcast as well, Ricky. So thanks for the update on the Wingman Foundation. And we'll catch you again in a few months. Hopefully you won't have any mishaps to report to us. All right, Sunshine. Well, this is the point the. Of- show where we always want to remind the listeners that the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guest, and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components. We want to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Michael Friedman, Mission Commander John Clark, and two Airbosses, Robert Miller and George Bravo. And we also want to mention that this show is produced by our friends at the Muscle Car Place Podcast Network. Check out their shows and service offerings at w www.themusclecarplace.com So, Sunshine, any party shots before we wrap it up and get out
3: of here? No, I just loved listening to Magua talk about the Harrier the or the scarier, as some call it, right? And <laughs> what do we always say, Jello? Well, we'll uh, wrap it up and get out of here for today. We'll be back in a couple
0: days to get back on the schedule of the 12th. And then we'll see you for our next feature episode on the 22nd, episode 57. Not quite sure what it'll be yet, but I'm sure it'll
2: be exciting. Until then, we're out of here. See ya. See ya. you've been listening to the fighter pilot podcast brought to you by bvr productions got a question for the show send an email to questions at fighter podcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877 mach 101 that's 877 4101 be sure to check out our website at fighter podcast.com you can also find us on facebook instagram twitter and youtube For exclusive fighter pilot podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening.